Hey everybody, this is Bruce from Plantavo, Simple Shop Management Software. Today we've got a very special guest, again actually the second time he's with us, Mark Kudre, the founder and CEO of Catalyst Plan. Com. So just to preface really quick, we've actually had you on before. We had a call together just talking about education and, and industry things going on. You always bring up some really hard-hitting topics that I think are almost taboo to talk about. And so that's why I wanted to have you on again. Mark, thanks for joining us. You're welcome, Bruce. It's always a pleasure to be here. Uh, and we actually met at the first time in Atlantic City at ISS. Yes, that's right. such an internet relationship for so long. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I have a lot of those. <laughs> right? Isn't that funny? First, let's just dive in. We were talking about pricing first, and we were also talking about customers and um, profitability. I know a book that Marshall's been pushing is Profit First, which I've seen a lot of different shops has been opening their eyes to helping them maintain profitability. But Really quickly first, the core, though, I think is more on customers. What are you studying now about customers and ideal customers and just like the core print shop level that, that you're working with in, with your Catalyst students? I have now over 150 companies that either currently um, engaged in the Catalyst program or have been through the Catalyst program over the last five years. And as a result of that, I've been able to look at, you know, dozens and dozens, I would say probably close to 100 sets of customer lists and balance sheet and income statements. So I, I'm starting to see patterns within the characteristics of these different shops. And one of the things that is universal, whether the shop is doing, you know, $50,000 a year or whether they're doing $5 million a year is a, a lack of understanding of who your best customer is or what Matt, what is the profile of a customer that you want to do business with. And the reason I say that is because part of what we do in Catalyst is it starts off as a simple 80-20 analysis where we look at your customer base and we divide it up and, you know, we've all heard of 80-20 where, you know, 20% of your customers generate 80% of your profits. Well, it is absolutely true. I mean, in almost every case, we're within 2 or 3% of 80-20. And when you look at the lower 80% that generate 20% of your profits, it's only the top part of that 80% that makes up those profits. Mm -hmm. So literally, 80% of the 80% are costing you money. And the reason I say that is because the order sizes are too small to, to produce enough revenue to cover the cost to do the business. And so what that means is that the profitability of your better customers is going to subsidize the small orders. And you're literally welfare for your small clients. And what, are you, the, what are you defining as small, Mark? Typically, for me, from anybody that's got a single automatic uh, you know, if they're running a, a one automatic or more, mm -hmm. I make the cut at two hundred and fifty dollars of revenue. You know, that's typically gonna, that's typically going to be somewhere in the neighborhood of thirty six shirts, uh, something like that. That's the break even point. We could go into a big long discussion about costs and how you figure it and how it's not as obvious as you think it is. But the bottom line is, any order that's not generating at least two hundred and fifty dollars of of top line revenue, there's a very highly high probability that it's costing you money to do that. You're taking money out of your revenue to 
cover the internal cost and the overhead that's associated with producing that job. In looking at a typical shop with an automatic, the average cost to run that shop, if you took their total cost and you divided it by the number of hours per month, it's going to run somewhere between $175 and $300 an hour, depending on what part of the country you're in, what kind of equipment you've got, how many employees, things like that. That means that you know if your cost is, say, $200 an hour, $250 mm-hmm. an hour, something like that, that you've got to be able to produce that job completely with all of the pre-press and the administrative cost to enter the job, your sales commissions, your production time, everything for le- in less than a half an hour. Of production time. So if these guys wanted to figure out their their break-even cost, you're saying you take the total cost. Are you talking annually or are we talking trying to break it down in a month and then by hours? You know, this is the thing about pricing is that there's a lot of old school models that they teach, you know, in college and yeah, mostly in college. When you take accounting and bookkeeping, if you take cost accounting, which is part of the managerial accounting series, they talk about standard costs and budgeted hourly rates and all these different kinds of things. Mm-hmm. I keep it real simple. I say, you know, add up all of your costs. So, you know, if, if you're, if you take all of your costs, your labor costs, your mm-hmm. overhead, your power, your, you know, gas, all that stuff. And you add it up, say it comes to $10,000 a month. That's your total cost for the month. And what I do is I use a type of costing called activity-based costing, which is not common, but it's very accurate and it's super simple. So it takes all of your cost. You just look at it and start coloring it in like a thermometer every day of the month. You add up your costs for that day. You know that you're moving towards $100,000 for the month. And if there's 20 20 days in the month or 21 days in that month, it varies a little bit depending on which month it is. But you make that many divisions into it. And every day you take the total amount of money above your raw material cost and your inbound freight cost to get the material to you if you're paying for freight. And you add that, you color it in towards your $10,000 a day. And the goal is to get to 10000 the soonest you possibly can in the month. And when you see it in front of you visually, you can see how that thermometer, just like when the YMCA has their fundraiser and they put that bar chart out on their lawn, you know, so they can see how close they are to their fundraising goal. That's what we do is we keep track of the actual cost on a daily basis. Mm-hmm. And what what I found when I used, when I used traditional costing methods, it focused us on break even for the month. And as a result, we were pricing our jobs based on that break even. And we would hit that break even like the afternoon of day 19, which means that the profit for the company came in the afternoon of day 19 and all day of day 20, which was nothing. I mean, it was like 5%, 2%, 3%, something like that. Very, very low numbers. When we started using activity-based costing, we could see that we were hitting our break-even point. The first month, we hit it on day 15, and we'd been at day 19 and a half. So we had four and a half days, three and a half days of additional production where we could make money, you know, where we could make profit. Sure. And at that, at that point, 100% of the revenue that you generate drops to the bottom line. And so we were able to see... You know, we doubled our profit in the first month we tried it. By the end of the third month, we were approaching 30% net profit on top line sales. And we were doing a, a substantial amount of contract work at that time, but we also had a substantial amount of full package work where we had, you know, pretty fat margins on that. 
Well, when we started doing that, we could see that, you know, the emphasis was to push the day down closer. So we were ultimately able to get down into the day 12, day 13 out of a 20-day month. And then everything from that point on was profit. That's where we saw that enormous improvement in the profitability of the company and also the associated cash flow that goes with it. Interesting. Now, I'm assuming you're including um, not only your team salaries, but also yours as well. Absolutely. A lot of, a lot of folks will kind of no, forego absolutely. that. You know, if you are not paying yourself in your business and you're working in your business, you're radically understating the viability of what you have. You know, you should be paying yourself, and this is a big part of Profit First, mm -hmm. is you should be paying yourself the price, the wage that it would cost to pay someone who is doing the job that you are doing. So if that's a general manager position and you're in a small shop, probably going to be somewhere in the neighborhood of 40000 a year would be pretty minimal for someone to run a company and be responsible for profitability of that company. If you were an investor, how much would you have to pay somebody to run the business without you being there? Otherwise, you're working for minimum wage or less. So I always count the owner's compensation in there. I always make sure that the owners get paid on the same payroll period that everybody else gets paid on. And that helps to motivate you to get the business healthy because most small businesses, they're in a major cash flow crunch because they don't understand their cash cycle or the margins, et cetera. So they're short of cash. So what do they do? They don't pay themselves. They live off their wife or, or spouse's sure. income flow. Or say, I'll take or, it next month or the next month. Right. And or, you know, they keep their day job and they continue to work part time at night or on the weekends or whatever. That's fine. But that's a self-employment situation, because if you stop doing the work, the income stops. So you've created a job for yourself. You don't have a business. Uh, Michael Gerber goes into this in E-Myth. I'm sure you've talked about that on other podcasts. E-Myth is a great book. Uh, Profit First is a, a tremendously enlightening book, and I would highly recommend it to anybody that is getting going, or even if they have a, a, a very substantial business, I would still look at it because it goes a long way to getting you to profitability and positive cash flow quickly. Yeah. I want to go back to the kind of break-even point that, that you were outlining in that formula before, but yeah, I, I was actually very interestingly surprised around the shops that forego salaries. And I think where it becomes difficult is also the seasonality aspect of the business too, right. where you have the swings. And especially around where, you know, let, let's call it a shop that has to deal with campus or like um, collegiate schools. wear, right, schools, right. any sort of schools. So <clears throat> things, of course, settle down and get pretty slow during the summer where they have to figure out supplemental revenue from there. So now let's say for an example, I'm sure you've seen a lot of shops where, no, that's okay, where they have to be able to scale up and they want to be able to grow and buy a next auto or another piece of equipment because right. there's more influx and they can't handle the amount of work. Are you talking by finding that more optimal job, you're declining other work or are you trying to sub it out? Or how do you take into account the seasonality while trying to maintain a consistent profitability, especially for owners? So what you're trying to do is generate maximum revenue per hour of production. And when you know what your hour of production is worth, that's a starting point. <clears throat> now, when you have highly seasonable work, ski resorts is another example of, you know, seasonal business. In their case, they're busy during the winter, then, you know, the summer they're not so busy, but now they're, they're adding things like mountain biking and things like that mm -hmm. to get additional use out of, 
you know, the facilities. In a case like that, the best way to understand your business is to do what's called a trailing average. And a trailing average is where you take 12 months of your sales month by month. You add up the sales across that time period. Say that it's, uh, we'll start in January. You would take January and then you would go back to the previous December. You would add up all those sales and divide by 12 or 13 if you wanted to use a full year with the current month and get that average. And then when you went into February, you would do the same thing. You would go back with the trailing 12 months and divide it. What that does is that gives you the average for the year based on that particular month. And it takes the seasonality, the bumps out of that season. So that's so, your goals? Yeah. So that's, that's one way that you use to handle seasonality. So when you're doing that, then you're basing your budgets and your cash reserves in such a way that it fits into what those average numbers are. Then when you get into the June, July, August timeframe where it's very slow, you have reserve money put aside to carry you through that period. And you also know what that number is that you're shooting for to find complementary work to fill in so that you've got this consistent average. Otherwise, it just freaks you out. You know, you might be doing $100,000 a month in April and May, and then in, at the end of June, it might drop down to 35000 because the schools are all finished and all sure. the activities are done. And you look at that and go, oh my God, how am I going to pay my bills? Well, when you use trailing averages, this is another way of budgeting to accommodate seasonality. And again, it's a higher level accounting principle that most businesses are unaware of because they've they got they maybe had basic bookkeeping or they're they're using a bookkeeping service which is really just adding up the debits and credits but they're really not managing the seasonality of the business or they're not looking at trends they're not looking at the operating ratios that tell you what's safe and what's not safe for your business these are all higher level kinds of things it's like the difference between going from vector work to printing half tones quantum leap in the level of sophistication that you have to have in order to be able to do really good halftone printing. Well, it's the same thing with accounting and growing your business. The faster you grow your business, the more sophisticated your financial controls have to be. And it's unfortunately, it's one of the key areas that is almost always missing because I think people are afraid of numbers. They're afraid of doing the math. They don't know the questions to ask. So they're kind of at the mercy of the results that they get. Let me take you back to, you were talking about that $250 number of an estimated revenue if you're running an automatic. Um, and we'll get into, if, if, for example, for the manual shops out there too. What you said is about 36 shirts. Does that also break down into, let's just call it a scale of difficulty of design? And difficulty, sure. I'm just saying, is a rating of Absolutely. how many colors and everything. Yeah, absolutely. That's a great point because, you know, you can look at that and say, all right, if, if it's a two-color job and there's no registration involved. The um, setup time and there's setup much time is going to be much shorter, right? right? And there's all kinds of things that you can do to speed up those setup times and reduce those changeover, you know, time frames that are not being produced because it's like a teeter-totter. Mm -hmm. You know, you're either earning money when you're producing or you're um, adding expense if you're not producing. So, there's this equilibrium and with your setup costs, you know, if you're running an auto, for instance, and you're setting up uh, four or five jobs during the day, each job that you set up subtracts from available production time, which means that you have to add that time 
on to the next production job that you do to recover what was lost during that setup. And so very quickly, you reach a point in the day where you're no longer able to recover that, and the day becomes a loss because of the setups. Because of any time that's not, the press isn't running, then it's... Subtracting from that availability of that money, it's burning it. Essentially increasing the cost that you have to produce at. Correct. So with a manual shop, is there a rough estimate number? Is it more than 250 then? For a manual shop, generally not because the manual arena is so different because there's so many people that are doing this, you know, out of their home, Mm -hmm. out of their barn, their shop that's on their property. It's not their main day job. The principles are all the same, but, you know, it comes down to getting your car fixed. If you go to get your car fixed today, you're hard pressed to find a mechanic that's going to charge less than a hundred bucks an hour. Why? Because they've got labor rates that are pretty high for a trained mechanic that's a certified mechanic. Uh, You've got your overhead for your built business. You've got your liability insurance and all these kinds of things. All that stuff adds up. I know that most people that are out there that are small shops would say, if I charged $100 an hour, there's no way I'd stay in business. Well, the answer to that is you're correct. Charge $100 an hour, you wouldn't be in business because you're not charging enough for the work that you're doing. And so the question becomes, how do you design your business to accommodate $100 an hour activity? That's really what it comes down to. And, they and can, so that's, they, that's, that's related then to the marketing aspect of it. They can take that same formula of adding up the total cost, all salaries and everything, and divide it by, call it 20 days a month times eight hours a day or something and find their cost per hour of break even. Yes, but the danger with that is that's assuming that you're working 100% of the time. True, that's true. That's your cost, right? right? You're not printing so 100% this, of the time. And this is the trap of cost accounting. Which in a manual thing. shop, being smaller, they're probably even doing it less because they have multiple roles going on and everything. So their right. costs they are even have higher hours. Right. Per, so, per print. So this is why you just need to draw that line at $10,000 a month or $5,000 a month, whatever that number is, mm-hmm. and just make that the realization that you have to hit that number before you make any money. So the emphasis is let's hit it as hard as we can, as fast as we can to cover that expense because then everything after that is profit, pure profit. Now, are you also including, you're not including the cost of the goods, right? For shirts or something? Okay. The cost of the goods minus the freight to get the goods to you are the only thing that you're subtracting from the top line. Okay. So if you're a contract printer, 100% 100% of that top-line money goes to, towards your you know, monthly operating expense until you hit it. Now, this also goes into pricing. We work with a lot of shops who, frankly, play out ask us, you know, how should we be pricing? Is this how we should be pricing with example matrices? <clears throat> pricing is such a great area, I feel like, for companies, big and small. And a lot of it is compared down to competitors, which I'm sure you see as a little bit frightening just because the unknown costs of every different shop. Let's just go with the automatic shop since we have a little bit more of core numbers that you said a rough 250 revenue per job. The pricing of that, how are they trying to calculate what, what to price those jobs at? And take into account that the biggest concern is that, well, I'm going to lose this job to the guy down the street if I, if I don't price more competitively versus like the default answer of, well, you have to raise it, you know, to, to match your cost. This is, as you say, it's a gray area. It's messed up in every shop that I look at. Literally 100% of the shops that I look at don't get it right. And the reason they don't get it right is because they're using trade custom as the approach. Everybody uses matrixes, right? So you've got 
a price for 12 and a price for 24, a price for 36, mm -hmm. maybe 48, maybe 72, wherever your price breaks are. They're using some kind of a price break matrix based on the number of colors and the quantities that you create the price break on. Mm -hmm. Now, those price breaks, they are not going to admit it, but the reality is everybody starts by comparing their competitors. They go out and they get the yes. competitor's price list. We did that when we were running, when we first started. 100% of the people do that because it's a logical thing to do. Right. You want to find out what that guy's doing. And if you don't understand business at all, the, the approach is, well, if I'm 10% under that guy, then I'm going to get the business and I can improve things and raise the price over time. That's the logic behind it. It's completely independent of what your cost is or your ability to cover your cost. And some people do well with it and other people don't. Like I said, the vast majority of shops that I see, they're, they're doing far too many jobs on the low end based on this matrix. Mm -hmm. And as a result of that, they end up burning up their available time on things that are not generating enough money to, to cover their operational costs at the end of the month. So what's wrong machine, with the matrix? Well, here's the thing. It's, it's really simple. You can do this and take a look at it you know, at the lower end of it, like say a 24-piece job or a 10-piece job or a 12-piece job, something like that. Some of the smaller jobs in Excel, put together a little spreadsheet and down one side of it, create a fill with quantities like one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, you know, up to 144. Then in the column next to it, put in the price break that you're going to charge, you know, for that in that price quantity. So from one to 23 or 12 to 23, whatever it is, put in that charge and then multiply it across and you'll see how much revenue that you generate from that. What you'll see very quickly is that let's just use a simple example of where the first price break is four dollars a unit and then the next price break is three dollars a unit mm -hmm. right at 36 pieces it would at 35 it would be 35 times four dollars it's 140 dollars yep right 140 and if, if we go to 36 at three revenue that we generate at 36 units drops to 108 dollars so that means that you know, you're going retro backwards from what that previous price break was. And then if you take the quantity, which was 140, and divide that by three, which is the price break at 36, mind. right? 140 divided by three, it's not going to be until 47th shirt that you reach the same amount of money that you generated at shirt 35. So that price break, essentially, you're going backwards and you're not generating any more money. And the next price break is at 48. And at the next price break, guess what? You go backwards again, and then you have to go up to like shirt 55 or 56 to generate the same amount of money that you were doing at shirt 40, 47. Mm -hmm. So you get these spikes. They go up and they drop and they go up and they drop and they look like shark's teeth. As a result of that, you're being busy, being busy, and you're not generating any more money. Okay, wait. So I'm going down this. I'm actually creating the Excel sheet at the same time here. You're doing the price breaks of 124, 50, 48, 72, 144. Those are the typical ones. So I just did simple. Um, we did the price breaks 124, 48, 72. And then down those, I did the print cost would be $5, $4, $3, $2. Short examples, you said 30, 40, and 50. Well, just know what you want to do is you want to take a look at the, the revenue that's generated one piece prior to the price break. Okay? Which even and at it, 40 and 50, at 40 shirts, you make more than you do at 50 shirts. Exactly. And yeah. so this is exactly what I'm saying. And it's, it's not even a right huge next to trap. It. 
This is a huge trap that everybody falls into. They're working their tail off and they're thinking that they're getting work coming through the, the door and everything's great. And they want to know at the end of the month, why didn't we make any money? It's because you're literally putting yourself out of business, but because of the behavior of your price chart. Got it. Now, and nobody, literally nobody talks about this. So I'm going to actually attach this to the blog post so people can see as well. How do we remedy this so we can change it today? That's a tough question because basically this is derivative calculus is what, what it comes down to is we're literally charting the behavior and we're looking at the price. The price changes at every single shirt to do this properly. To create a price sheet that works properly, you would calculate what the shape of that uh, pricing model looked like and it would use a formula instead of a matrix. So essentially you'd put in the quantity exactly. and it would, it would apply against that formula and that would give you the price. That would always guarantee the next piece that you sold would be greater, would generate more revenue than the previous quantity that was there. But even if you break this down and you break the pricing down and make your own price sheet based on every five shirts or every six shirts for like a half a dozen, you're gonna eliminate the big gap that happens at that price break. You're gonna minimize that price break. The two things that you have to consider is number one is pricing behavior. And that's what we're talking about here is we're looking at what's happening with the revenue, which is the total amount of money that we're generating. Mm -hmm. And then consider the second half of that is how does this fit in into the marketplace? Because if I need to charge more and my competitors are charging less, you know that they're going out of business slowly. You know, it's like a, a very slow decay of them working really hard and not making enough money. And they're either going to get tired of that and quit or they're going to run out of money and quit. But mm -hmm. eventually they're going to quit because they can't sustain it unless they do something else, right? So what we have to do is then look at our sales and marketing and determine what is it that we can do to add enough value that our customer is willing to write us a check that's bigger than writing a check to our competitor. Okay. And unfortunately, the majority of people in this business do not understand marketing. They don't understand value added. You know, the last time that, that we were together, we talked about value and adding value and what value actually is and how we do it. And so adding value is what allows you to charge more for your product. So if you're buying a Mercedes-Benz or a, a BMW or a Lexus, you're going to pay more for that vehicle than you are for a Toyota. A Toyota is the same chassis that the Lexus is built on, but they've added things to get extra perceived value. So there's things that we can do to add value beyond just decorating the garment. Okay, I want to touch on that too. Back to the matrix quickly. If someone were to say, okay, we need to change this, this week and we need to be able to price a little bit better at least make an improvement towards it and maybe that's making more breakdowns that are closer tied instead of just the typical five or eight of them we break it down into 30 of them more than that that's a good tactical piece for step one but step two is what should the price really be and we were just talking about you know if that press isn't running you're essentially your costs are getting higher because of the kind of backlogged costs that keeps adding from not from it not that's, running that's um, correct i mean in reality your cost really variable and kind of change although you can average it across the whole month but if you want to break it down further it can change depending on how much your work you're doing or not doing so here's the deal bruce and this is where the reality of this sinks in right 
say your cost is $10,000 a month mm -hmm. and your production efficiency is 50%, that means that your actual cost per hour is going to be twice what it is if you were running at every available hour. Efficiency as in that price is running. Correct. Got it. Right? And, the, and I see shops all the time whose actual efficiency is between 33 and 60%. I very rarely see a shop, unless they're a long-run contract shop, that's over 65%. Interesting. Interesting. So the $10,000 really isn't your true cost. It's, no. it's your It's your bottom line dollar cost, but your cost it's per your, hour. It's your, it's your true cost, but it's not your cost per hour of operation. Right, right, okay. Your cost per hour of operation is your efficiency divided into the actual unit price. Got it. So it would be 10000 divided by 0.5 would give you $20,000 know, that is then divided by the hours that you're actually printing. Got it, okay. And you, someone can easily be able to calculate that with some sort of stopwatch every day or just be able to watch it or, or write when things are stopping and starting on a piece of paper, at least to get a, a good baseline for... Right. Now, now, how does that go into your production efficiency, go into calculating the price for the matrix in the front end then? So this is where you get into this battle between activity-based accounting and cost-based accounting, mm -hmm. right? So the cost-based accounting does exactly what what we're talking about, which is dividing your efficiencies and keeping track of all the hours and all that kind of stuff. And it gets really complicated when you start diving into the details. Mm -hmm. Activity-based counting, I just look at it and say, you know, we've got a $10,000 nut to crack. How fast are we going to do it? And the thing that's important for me is to look at what percentage of every sales dollar is contribution margin toward that overhead expense. So if I can create, you know, $500 a day of contribution margin, that means that I won't cover my cost until day 20. Well, if there's 20 days in the month, $500 a day is not going to get me any profit. It's going to break even for the month, right? If I increase my contribution margin per day to 750 and I'm going to hit my daily number, you know, somewhere, let's just see what that is, 10,000 divided by 750, we're going to hit that at day 13. That would make an enormous difference because now everything from day 13 to day 20 or day 21, all of that money is going to drop to the bottom line. So that's, uh, say, seven days times 750 per day, which is our budget. That's $5,000 profit. That's the difference between a $5,000 profit and breaking even is hitting your breaking break even point earlier in the month. Gotcha. Interesting. Okay. So that's, that's the difficulty of it. Now I'm trying to figure out still how we're taking the cost down and breaking it down. Are we saying that, okay, Hey, if there's X amount of hours, we have an efficiency of call it 50%. We can only, we print on average X amount per hour. Is that what we're saying? This is how many shirts we have to print on average and to then drive a profit of X percentage, this is what we need to be pricing at, and, and just back into it from there? You can back into it in a number of different ways. Mm -hmm. The simplest way is to say, how can, I, how can I do $750 worth of contribution margin? That's not top-line sales. That's the available money okay. that's available to pay the cost of running the business. How do I get to 750 per day or 500 or whatever your number is? How do I get to that number per day? And break it and down so, from there. Right. And so there's different ways of doing it. If, if the market is such that it's super competitive in the marketplace, then what we have to do is focus on internal efficiencies to improve our productivity. So we've got more hours in the day 
that's spent printing and less hours in the day changing the press over, right? Got it. So that's one way of doing it. The other way of doing it is to say, okay, let's add value where we can get more value. So it might be things like folding and bagging. It might be delivery. It might be providing other services besides just decorating that the customer's willing to pay for that gives us some margin towards paying for our total costs. And so doing that, we get some improvement in pricing that way. And then if we focus on improving the productivity internally, that's another factor. They're multiplicative on each other. Mm -hmm. So they leverage each other, right? So if we look at it from the component pieces and improve each one of the component pieces by small amounts, we get to our number quickly. You touched on something here and you talked about hidden costs almost. I don't think these are necessarily costs that are like buying things. It's like time costs. What are some of these hidden costs that, that people don't truly realize? Oh my gosh, approvals. Okay. Right? So you've got a job and you're ready to run it. You've done the print. The client wants to see the first off sample. So you're on press. You've got the sample. You told them to be there at 1030. 1030, you've got this piece for him to look at and they don't show up. The press is tied up. You can't print. You're waiting for him to approve it. Mm -hmm. And your press is burning hundred bucks an hour, $120 an hour is $2 a minute. So it's delays, it's holding. When I look at, and I've charted this with tens of thousands of jobs over the last 20 years, literally you've got setup time, approval time, run time, and teardown time. And the approval times are one of the most common delays that you can't make up. And people just don't get that time is money in that case. Mm -hmm. So if they want to have an on-press approval, you know, it's like they've got to be there. Otherwise, you're charging them two bucks a minute, you know, for, for press time. And approvals with customers, are there ways for them to reduce that cost? Maybe like reducing? Well, just look at art approvals. Mm -hmm. You know, if you've got a job that's scheduled to run tomorrow and they need to art approve it that afternoon, if they don't art approve it that afternoon, you can't make screens, you can't run it the next day. Now you've got a hole in your schedule that was forecast or budgeted to cover your costs for the next day. So now you, you don't have enough work unless you can pull it in to cover that open time because of the approval. Can you almost break down that cost of approvals to saying, hey, it's worth it to hire someone else to follow up with these people to move it even quicker? Bigger shops, absolutely. Interesting, interesting. And so that's seeing like how long it's in, in Printavo specifically with like the status or the stage of that process, you know, almost timing that and knowing that that is taking away from being able to increase your right. turnover. But now, take into account, right, that press could be busy with other jobs too. Is it, it the problem it, when it's not being able to run though because that job's not approved and it's holding up? Right, or stock may, have not, stock may not have arrived, mm -hmm. or it arrived and it was wrong. That's another big one, yeah. right? You, you, want, you ordered larges and they sent you extra larges. Yeah. Well, crap, I'm not gonna set that job up because I'm short six pieces. Right. Right? So what do I do? And what happens if that job was a 300-piece run? Now you've got an open slot in your schedule for a 300-piece run that you've got to drop something else in there. Otherwise, you're going to eat that cost. Gosh, that is, that is one area. I mean, we've internally we've been working heavily on approvals and speeding that up a lot. And we actually just showed Mark, Mark through a lot of our automation around approvals. But the incorrect stock is something I've chatted with a lot of shops where it, it's almost very frustrating that it, it's to a point where I feel like shops would pay a certain amount a month to have correct 
quality goods sent to them that are correctly counted. There's no holes. There's no issues like that. Like it's to a point where they would pay extra. And I, yeah. I, I, I guess maybe so I just don't that's understand. A, that's a perfect example, Bruce, yeah. of, of value add. If you know that the industry um, typical accounting for holes or hems that aren't sewn right or tears in the shirts is a half a percent, you could actually pay for 99.9% accuracy. We could calculate the economic value of that to you and also the, to, the, to the distributor for that kind of level of accuracy. That's crazy. This must be me on the kind of ignorant side is just not fully understanding the supply chain of, of storing and picking goods and all that. And I'm sure it's plenty difficult, but it seems like such a core, core aspect of the flow. And not only that, but the time that it costs the decorators to then, because now, you know, of course, shops have to count everything. I mean, you have to make sure that it's there. Have you ever ordered something from Amazon where it wasn't there I mean, you just expect it. It's You'd be shocked if you didn't get the 10 items that you ordered from them. You use the word ignorant, and ignorant is the correct term. It's not a negative term. It means you just don't know. Yeah, I don't, I and this, don't and, understand. And what we're, what we're seeing, I've been in this business since I was 16 years old, and that's uh-huh. like 50 years almost You know that I've been in this business. And to be studying this behavior activity at this time in my life, that is completely unknown and unseen and unrecognized is beyond me. Does it seem weird that nobody would understand these pricing issues that we've been talking about and the interrelationship of price and cost and accuracy of material that's, that's being pulled? It, it's beyond me, yeah. but that is the custom of the industry and it's the accepted practice. Well, I, French- I think the pricing though is, I think that one is more difficult because it's not as standard and it very much so depends on the type of shop, the people, the salaries, the location. There's so many factors that make it difficult. Like you can't just kind of plug numbers in. Well, I guess you can technically, but it's very more advanced. That's something we got to work on, but you're right. I mean, we can work hard or we can work smart. Yeah. Everybody's working hard right now. And you know, the platforms like yours, like Printavo, is making a tremendous effort to make the business better, but but really, you're still just improving working hard. We need to move more towards the underlying smartness of what the decisions are that we're making. Are you just improving the current model, which isn't working, or are you actually getting to the core root cause of what's happening so that you can do the minimum amount of work in the least amount of time to generate the most amount of money. Interesting. And that's, yeah. that's all what we're after here. That's Ooh. optimization. This is industrial engineering is what it is. Sure. Yeah, that's awesome to hear. I mean, we've got internally, I'm super excited, but we've got some stuff around these aspects that, that we'll chat more about too that to really help be able to tap this better on a scale that I don't think we've fully seen before. So, um that's exciting. So we talked about hitting costs. You talked about also adding more value to an order. What are things that someone can do now to immediately make people more willing to give more or pay more? So the thing about it is you have to change your view. Your view right now is eye to eye with your customer. You know, it's sort of like, this is what I got. This is what I'm selling. And the customer goes, Okay, I want what you've got, but I want it at a, I want it at, at my price. So then you get into this negotiation thing. Either they shop it 
or you negotiate the price where they say, you know, the guy down the street's a quarter cheaper, you know, can you match his price or come close to it? So you go through this dance of negotiation. It's the way it's been forever, right? Mm -hmm. If you elevate your view, if you were take an elevator ride above your customer, so you're looking down on your customer, now what you can do is look past your customer to how the shirts are actually, the garments are actually going to be used at the end user level. Now your customer may be the end user level, but the chances are it's an event. So the end users are the customers of that event, the people that are coming to that event, or they're the students in a school, or they're the employees in a company. Those are the end users. So the key takeaway here is improve your value by improving the end user experience. What is it at the end user level can we add that will improve that and make that a better situation for them? So let's take the event, for instance. If it's an event and it's an outdoor event and they're going to be selling shirts at that outdoor event, fold them and bag them. Keeps them clean, keeps the inventory, takes the risk out of it because you don't know what the environment is there. Package them by size and by color per box so that you've got your boxes set up by small, medium, large, extra large, and you've got colors, you know, red, blue, black, white, one box on top of each other so that that when they are there at the venue location, they can just go to the small stack and reach a red and pull it out, and they know that, you know, they're going to be out of reds, Mm -hmm. you know, in size small. And they can see immediately what they've got for inventory, and they can facilitate the transaction process, which means that more people can go through the line faster, which means they generate more money, more revenue. So that's a value add right there. And you can charge for folding, you can charge for bagging, you can charge for packaging, you can charge for all of those little things that make and expedite the transaction that allows them to generate more revenue at their location. Gotcha, that's, okay. That's just one one example. There's dozens of more when you start thinking this way. Are there any other ones that you've seen that are pretty unique that shops are doing too? Value add, unique value adds. Mm-hmm. Right off the top of my head, I've got so many different people doing so many different things. You know, there's delivery. You know, if you're going to deliver the finished job to the client, you know, a salesperson goes to the location and takes the order at the location as opposed to having somebody come to you. Things like that. Maybe charging that, more for expedited shipping or more fee on top of your raw shipping costs. You could do that. You could add, you know, packaging costs, you know, how, for segregation of packaging with, within the area and make it easier for them to keep track of it. Things like marking boxes. On the outside of the box, if you create a packing list, a packing sticker that sticks on the box on the outside that tells them the size and the colors that are in that box, that doesn't cost you anything, but you could add a few cents per shirt. If you added two cents per shirt for that kind of package identification, it's 144 shirts. You know, that's another 30 bucks that you just added at two cents a unit. Mm-hmm. So it doesn't take a lot. Two cents here, a cent, you know, one cent here, five cents there, a quarter here for packaging, for folding and bagging. You know, all of a sudden, yeah, I've seen bag and tag more. a few bucks per uh, per shirt actually too, mm-hmm. separating them all. And- As you get into the value added mindset then you elevate yourself to the point where the value add is time. And so there's no physical cost on our end of it to do this. It's just we've planted into our workflow. So we don't add any cost to it, but we add extra revenue. And that's really where you see big gains. Awesome. I think we've uh, I've soaked up your full hour here. <laughs> I mean, I could go on and on. There's so much to cover here, you know, Bruce. And the, the more that we get into it, 
And the more that we dive into it, you know, our industry has no benchmarks. That's one of the things about Catalyst that's really working well now is that I'm developing benchmarks at different size shops. So the benchmark performance and your benchmark costing, et cetera, is different for a shop that's doing 350000 a year. And it's different again at a million and it's different again at three million and it's a different again at five million uh, because the characteristics of organization within the shop change at those levels. Then there's the whole behavior of revenue per employee. You know, we started off, it used to be that it was $100,000 of revenue per employee was a safe level. Now we're seeing 200,000 per employee because we're getting more efficient and the profitability goes way up when we get to that level. Now we're starting to see companies that are pushing 300,000 per employee. Why? Because we're looking at the things that they're doing and we're organizing the shops and the workflows differently. So you're using fewer people to get more revenue generated. It's a combination of value-based pricing and internal efficiencies and understanding of the cost that's involved in producing the work. So there's lots and lots of areas still to explore. I get a, a big kick out of reading the forums, you know, that like, Facebook, there's a lot of groups on Facebook and stuff mm -hmm. now. Yep, yep. And there's this whole thing about, you know, the young guns, you know, all the new young companies that are coming up and, and how the gray beards, the old guys like us, we don't know anything and it's a different world. I think that you probably get the fact that we know a lot about what's happening here. And even though the world has changed and the marketing models have changed and digital marketing is in place and analytics are in place, that's different than it was in the old days. But in the old days, it was direct marketing. And the direct marketing is using the same analytics that are being used in web analytics today, only it was being done with uh, postcards and direct mailers. So all the stuff that seems new today is not new. It's been around for 100 years. Mm -hmm. It's just happening faster. And the thing that is new that I haven't seen any of the younger uh, people talk about are behavioral economics. Behavioral economics is how people buy. What are the emotional factors that cause somebody to make a decision to buy your stuff over somebody else's and to buy it now? And that's a whole other discussion that we can have because behavioral economics is really what's driving the economy today. The Amazons of the world, you know, what's driving the stock market and high frequency trading and all these different kinds of things are based on understanding behavioral economics. That's a whole nother discussion. What what are those? You talked about those benchmarks. What are the, the benchmarks for, I don't know, call it a half million dollar shop, a million dollar shop, and three million, is it? There's dozens. If somebody wanted to dig into it and start doing it, the thing you'd be looking for are operating ratios. And again, this is a managerial accounting, a higher level accounting function. And they look at the relationship of what's going on in your balance sheet and your income statement uh, to tell you where your cash is, how you're using it, and the efficiency of the utilization of your cash. All businesses use these ratios. Every industry uses these ratios. This is what the bank uses to analyze your company and decide whether they're going to give you a loan or not. Mm -hmm. um, the benchmarks are unique to our industry. So it'll tell us you know, at what point you're ready to hire a screen maker, just a screen maker. At what point, you know, are you going to run out of cash at your current growth rate? Uh, at what point are you going to start paying your suppliers 15 days late if you're on net 30 terms because you're running out of cash? These are all of the, the kinds of things that we're discovering now and are using as indicators to let a business know that they're heading for trouble or that they're on solid ground and that they could actually put the pedal to the metal even more aggressively because they've got enough cash flow to do it. 
Is there a basic ratio that they can say or, or a target, call it, uh, you know, if it, if revenue per employee gets up to 200, okay, you could bring on another person and bring it down to 150, 100 again? And- yeah, I would say take your gross sales and divide it by the number of employees. If you're below 100,000, you're in trouble. Got it. You've got a lot of room to move. That That is a cut point for me. I get a lot of companies coming into Catalyst that are in the 60,000, 70,000 mm-hmm. uh, revenue per employee. They're never profitable. We really don't start seeing profitability until you're up at about 140 or 150,000 in revenue per employee. Now, the kicker that's different about that is if you're a contract shop, only contract or only full package, then it skews the numbers a little bit differently. If you're a full package, shop, then your your revenue is going to be like closer to the 150 to 200 range. If you're a contract shop, you're going to be more towards the $100,000 range. Got it. And is there an upper limit where you're saying, or, or no? I mean, maybe it's just you keep becoming more efficient off that. I've got a friend that runs a business in another industry. He's doing $5 million of revenue right now with six employees. Holy cow. What is so that? He's, at like he's like 900000 per employee. Wow. Right now. So there is no upper limit. You know, if I could do, you know, $2 million with one person, I'd be thrilled at that, <laughs> you know. And the thing about it is, is you get creative. When you start looking at these numbers, you start thinking, oh, how can I get better at this? But right now, because there's, you're not measuring anything, it just grows organically. And when it grows organically, it, it moves towards randomness. And randomness means zero profitability. You're not optimized at all. If you have temp workers, how does that factor into the number of employees? Then it goes into contract labor and it goes to your total operating costs. Got it. Okay. Awesome, Mark. This is super helpful. I'm, I'm pretty excited to be able to share this with everybody else. Um, yeah, I got kind of geeky today, but... <laughs> <laughs> no, no, I enjoy it. I, look, I've got the Excel sheet open. I've got all this down, so... <laughs> I like getting into this too. So when people can see it, it will make a lot more sense. Yeah. Once you start seeing this, like, holy crap, how could I have gone so many years not knowing that this was happening? Mm-hmm. And as I said, there's dozens of these things that are going on right now. It's like we're coming into a whole new world. The analytics, the data analytics, when I did the presentation for ThreadX, my presentation was transition strategies to the new economy. It comes down to four things. Number one, accelerated sales. How do you accelerate your velocity of your sales? Number two, how do you address the changing buying behavior of the market, which is driven by Amazon and online sales? Number three, how do you connect the communities you serve? Not your customers, but the communities your customer serves. So if you're selling into the running community for 10K events, how do you use online stores to build a large running community that you can then promote to? Mm -hmm. And then number four is data analytics. Everything is in the data. Collect the data and then we'll figure out how to use it. So it's A, B, C, D. Accelerated sales, buying behavior, connecting communities, and data. Those are the four things that you need to know to be successful moving into the, to the future at any level. Awesome. Well, I'm pumped. I guess we'll have to have a uh, part three at some point, too. <laughs> so at some point, another another three or four months down the road, we'll uh, gather around and see how people progress. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Awesome, Mark. Well, thank you again. I appreciate it. You're welcome. Thank you for having me.